Hello and welcome to the first episode of How Did I Get Here, a podcast about the origin story of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. We think of origin stories as something that superheroes have, or wealthy people. Spider-Man and Steve Jobs get to have origin stories. However, there are people doing amazing things and leading amazing lives all around us. And those people have origin stories too, stories that are important for all of us to hear. In our culture, we're encouraged to be passive consumers of the products of corporate creativity. It takes perseverance and dedication to be an artist. Today's guest, the first on our podcast, is a person who has spent most of his life making music. Billy Huff is a founding member of the punk group Garage Dogs, and for the past 15 years, he has been the driving force behind Scream Along with Billy, a kind of musical variety show that features Billy on vocals and piano and Sue Goldberg on bass. Each show centers on the live recreation of a specific album, from the Beatles and Creedence Clearwater Revival to Radiohead, Patti Smith, Nirvana, and Billie Eilish. Billy and Sue are frequently joined by special guests, including Matt and Paul Huff, Billy's brothers, who co-founded the Garage Dogs with him, Darlene Van Alstyne, and Chris Ewan from The Magnetic Fields. Since debuting in P-Town, the Scream Along experience now regularly rolls into Joe's Pub in New York City and Once Ballroom in Somerville, Massachusetts. In addition to the Grotto Bar in Provincetown, its longtime home. Billy's latest great adventure is a one-man show about the search for love and a few other things called Cocksucker Blues. Morton Schneel from the New York Times calls the show a droll delight. Huff's cock romps reveal a soul searching for love and acceptance. He's like Tennessee Williams on acid. Okay, not true. The show has not yet been reviewed by the Times, but in reality, none other than Hilton Owls in the hallowed pages of the New Yorker called Scream Along poignant and beautiful and Huff mesmerizing. In the course of our conversation, I will be dropping in some of Huff's songs and also bits of editorial comment. Thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else, I give you Billy Huff. I wanted to start by asking you about Scream Along with Billy, the show that you've been doing now for 15 years, and about your uh, partnership with Sue Goldberg. She's like the rock of the Abs- show. Absolutely. She kind of keeps the whole thing grounded, and I think my sense of it is keeps you grounded a little bit. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. she's uh, Sue is... The show has... Uh, more to do with Sue that I get way too much credit for it. Sue has a musical background yeah. and she was, you know, a classically trained pianist. Sue had been in a band called Space Pussy and they had been a punk band on the Cape and you know, right, right. had some kind of East Coast, even national stuff. They had broken up and Sue had just lost her wife who had been ill for a number of years. And I never knew Eileen, but Eileen was a pivotal figure in Provincetown who I've learned about posthumously. But Sue and I knew each other very casually. And so I had my wig, I had my theme song, and I saw Sue uh, just walking down Province, you know, Commercial Street in Provincetown. And I said, do you want to come sit in with me tonight? Mm-hmm. And she said, sure. And she did that first night and she never left. Yeah. And, yeah. and that became it. 
I'll just tell you how it got started because that's kind of how Sue fits into the picture. I was in a punk band with my brothers, and still am, the Garage Dog. The three of us and Devin McGuire, who was a Boston local. We were friends in New Orleans. We had a punk band in New Orleans when mm. we lived there. And Devin moved back to Boston. I was still stuck in the South. Yeah. I had to get out of the South. Yeah. So yeah. I said Boston and had just started playing music with my brothers in our garage in Alabama mm. and came up to Boston and won a lawsuit. <laughs> it was wow. very small. Yeah, it's really a gross story, but I won it yeah. and called the boys and said, do you want to move to Boston and be a punk band? Right. And who doesn't? Sure. In your 20s. Hell yeah. So I literally spent my 20s living in a house with my band and a bunch of friends being like a punk band. It was like so much fun. It was, wow. it was chaos. Band moved to Los Angeles for a couple of years and then for numerous reasons, some of which are you know, in, enumerated on the album Venice, which we'll talk about in a minute. Sure. Uh, I kind of ended up in a crack house mm. at the same time that my two younger brothers and their longtime girlfriends were thinking about getting married, having kids, doing the whole thing. So, so it was time to... Heading pause. in different directions. <laughs> and I kind of moved to Provincetown because that's where everybody else was. And so I started playing the piano which is something no one had ever suggested to me. No one ever said, you know, you really ought to do a piano bar. But uh, I had gotten a job in Provincetown at the last minute because a piano player quit. And this was at the Gifford House, which is not only a traditional kind of old Provincetown bar, it was a traditional piano bar. Right. We've all been to them. Yep. Show tunes, American Pie, Great American Songbook, none of which I know. <laughs> right, right. So I what knew, did you do? I, I, I knew Lou Reed's Berlin, yeah. and I knew Laurie Anderson's Big Science. <laughs> On the piano, that was all I knew. That's, yeah. So my friend Bobby, who was the bartender, was like, just come do it, they'll love it. Okay, let me stop here and clarify for the shut-ins at home and... Now that we have coronavirus, I guess we're all shut-ins. If you haven't been to Provincetown, you might be asking yourself, well, what kind of place is this Provincetown, Massachusetts? Well, it's the kind of place where when the guy at the piano bar quits, the bartender says, yeah, let's get that kid that just crawled out of a crack house in Los Angeles to replace him. And that's what makes it so magical. Provincetown is one of the only places in the country where that kind of thing actually could happen. You don't have to be a piano bar guy. You could be a recovering crack addict and make it. I mean, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. To paraphrase another song. They did not. They did not. <laughs> it was terrible. And like right. all of these queens would come in and they'd be kind of like, you know, play Judy Garland. And I'd be like, fuck you. And right. you know, I'd do like, you know, the New York Dolls. But the manager noticed that they all stayed to drink and heckle me. Yeah. So the bar was making money. Right. So right. he just kind of put up with it. The next year they wanted me back. But my friend Bobby had moved to this new place, the Grotta Bar, which mm -hmm. had been around, but it was a new bar. He said, why don't you come do a night here? And I thought, well, I'm already playing the piano three nights a week. And I just said, I, I need a wig and a theme song. I thought this is differentiated. Yeah. Yeah. And there I could do more of the harder stuff, which would make me over time a little bit more amenable to playing some requests right. on a Saturday night. <laughs> right. Some. Right. <laughs> and at Scream Along, Sue plays two huge roles. One is that Sue doesn't flinch. Yeah. Both as a musician and as a person. Because I had just come back from 
Los Angeles. I weighed 82 pounds. I had mm. literally been in a crack house for two yeah. and a half years. Holy shit. So I had no driver's license. I'd lost my job. It was the second time in my life that I had had a go around with drugs. Yeah. And the first time you do that, everybody comes in to help. Right. Everybody comes in. Right. If it happens again, people start to pull back. And I do this with my own friends because yeah. like, you know, if it looks like this is now going to be a thing, you have to start bracing yourself. I understood it, but one of the things that's interesting, you may not know this, but apparently when people come off of crack or freebase or smoking crystal or any of those, they drink. And I had never been much of a drinker. And it doesn't yeah. make any sense to me because a drinking right. buzz and a speed buzz are two very different things. Right. But I was drinking like a fish. Mm-hmm. And so now I had, I already like was humiliated coming back to the East Coast after, you know, whatever. And now I was a fall down drunk for the first time in my life. Wow. It's terrible. Including um, one night that I ended up peeing the bed. Now, this mm. is it. I'm 30. What the fuck old am I? 33, 34. So I'm, it's already embarrassing. And I, I, I was sleeping over at my new boss's house in her guest bedroom. Yes. So I had never been a bedwetter like since I was right, a kid, right, but I also had men's, I, I broke a collarbone. I broke ribs, you know? Right, right. So um, anyway, I was having a lot of trouble and that had really hit the gossip. This is right as Scream Along with Billy was getting going. Yeah. And it was just mortifying. And so I got up on stage that first night and I said, so I've been wetting the bed. <laughs> <laughs> Which was was actually kind of empowering because Hell immediately yeah. like the gossip stopped. Right. So Scream Along immediately became the place where I could go and just tell the most embarrassing. It was it was kind of like therapy for me, but it's like I presented myself as just a barely functioning human being. Right. You know what I mean? Right, but you have and you have to get over the shame because that. the shame will kill you. Yes. And yes. it'll absolutely, because it'll drive you back to drugs and a drink mm-hmm. and, and the whole nine yards. Sure. So that makes total sense to me. And it kind of, you know, Sue, Space Pussy had been successful. The Garage Dogs had been successful. Yeah. She had lost her wife. We both thought we were retired. Right. We thought that the good days were behind us and the wow. scream along thing was just going to be this cynical valedictory lap. And right. then it kind of blew up. Yeah. So we were surprised. But um, it was, uh, I, I think... Uh, you know, I think that that's, we, we laugh about it, but I think one of the things that people like about Scream Along is like, no matter where you are, no matter how bad your recent decision-making run might have been, you still feel kind of better about yourself because I can kind of top it, you know? Right. Um, right. right. Well, my experience with Scream Along, you know, it was about five years ago, I think the first time that I saw you and I'd heard about, oh, you know, Scream Along with Billy, it's out in Provincetown. And I go to Provincetown on a you know, regular basis because my mom is out there and uh, it's been a place I've been going back to for many years, like many people. And I started to hear about it, started to hear about it. And my bias is if I hear a ton of people talking about how wonderful something is, I I think, well, this is probably garbage. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's not I'm not saying that's a good thing. That's just a bias. Um, So my expectations were relatively low. And we got to the grotto bar and it was, you know, we're a little after the start time or whatever. And we come in and you were playing Satellite of Love by by Lou Reed, which is an amazing song. And it was I think it was that night. And I know you've had a lot of guests over over time. I think that night it was mainly just you and Sue, maybe Paul on drums. I'm thinking was Paul on drums as well. But in that song, it was just you and Sue. 
And it was a stripped down, spare, beautiful rendition of this song. And it just clicked with me that you were really, um, there was an honesty about how you were doing it and a genuineness and a vulnerability, which I wasn't ready for. I was ready for like an act, like like a drag show. Like, you know, somebody's doing an act and they're kind of doing some cover songs and it's, you know, clever or whatever. But the vulnerability that you brought with you and the honesty that you brought with you just kind of floored me. And that's that's when it you kind of won me over. Um, and of course, we stayed for the show. And as you 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 told a few stories that night, and I kind of I felt like, again, like listening to what you were saying, it, I kind of was like, yeah, I've been there. I could feel it. I could feel I've been in some similar situation. I don't remember what the details of the story you told that particular night, but I was like, yep, I get it. I've been there. I feel it. And that kind of connection that you made and that I've seen you make with audiences is a huge part of Scream Along. And the fact that you allow yourself to be vulnerable is kind of amazing. And my, my feeling about it, just in hearing what you have said about the origins of Scream Along, is, is kind of fits in, is that you kind of started doing something that was just yours. This was your thing. You weren't out there. It didn't feel when I've ever, when I saw you and probably never felt like some big ego stroke that you were just kind of, you know. That would have been nice. Yeah, yeah it would have been a lot easier. It could have been a little more of that maybe. Right, right. Um, you know, it's not, a, it's not a quest for wealth and fame or anything like that. Like this is just you and you're doing your thing and it's important to you. And through that sort of gravity, you've just drawn people in. You've drawn an audience into your orbit. You've kind of gone to now having more guests and people. I know that um, recent years you've added more and more guests and it's kind of gained its own gravity. Sue and I, we try to shake it up for people. You know, we used to play every two weeks and the show was a Provincetown show, yeah. you know, period. Right. Never advertised it. We uh, we put one poster up at MAP, which is a clothing store in Provincetown. Yeah. And that's it. And we've never, you, you will not find it in print. Yeah. Um, so it was, we used to call it a show for townies and people who fuck them, basically. Right. You know what I mean? Because it's like, it's almost always been word of mouth. The idea about the vulnerability, like Sue and I are are only, especially when it started to work, our only rule at the beginning was like, let's not analyze it. Yeah. Let's never try to figure out what worked and what didn't work because then you give, you end up with a formula, whether you want to or not. It's math. We all do that. You try to figure what's working, what's not working. And so with the show... We've had some unmitigated disasters. Yeah. There was a show we did. We did a recreation of Robert Altman's Nashville at Joe's Pub mm-hmm. that literally two thirds of the audience walked out, and <laughs> including my friends. And like people were throwing beer bottles at me. It was a terrible idea. I'm very <laughs> proud of it. Yeah. But um, <laughs> no, we did something called Scat Night that mm-hmm. I thought was funny. It was did not work. <laughs> um, but we've also had nights that really work. And I feel like you kind of can't have one without the other. You know what I mean? It's like, if you look at Lou Reed, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, right? Those people are capable of making records, at least for someone with my taste level, those people are, are, are able of a level of artistic accomplishment that most people will never touch. Right. They've also all made terrible records. David Lynch, hit, miss. Robert Altman, hit, miss. Absolutely. So you have somebody like Spielberg or Tim Burton who always have a level of quality. Like, none of their movies are 
unwatchable. Right. But they also have kind of gotten into that safety place where it's been a long time since a Spielberg movie or a Tim Burton movie has been like an artistic breakthrough for me. Absolutely. Whereas with someone like Altman, you know, it's hard to sit through Quintet, <laughs> but, you know, Three Women, Nashville, yeah. like right. who makes movies like that? Right. Right. And so it's okay that we bomb sometimes, uh, right. which is obviously good um, because it means that sometimes like we hit it. You right, know. you're creatively more alive sure. when you allow yourself that risk, mm-hmm. and that is the vulnerability of like, hey, you're going to throw it out there, and this could be shit, but if it's not, it's gold. It is, and I think I think I feel safe. The wig was just a gimmick, right. literally, at the, and it's still the same wig. Yeah, <laughs> like they made a documentary five years ago about the yeah. fact it called "Scream Along with Billy Never Washed." Because somebody was like, I can't believe that wig is still holding up after so many washes. And I said, you can wash a wig? Right. <laughs> so never went. That was Ann Stott, who's actually yeah. a wonderful local musician in Providence yeah. in the documentary. But I think I've got the wig. I've got the piano. I keep the bar really dark. Right. I've got Sue. So I'm about as safe as I can be. And I think that that may have something to do with it. Like why, you know, I'm willing to go there. The other part circling back to Sue's importance and we'll get to her musical importance in a minute but is when I started telling these stories Sue would was almost a stand-in for the audience so part of my goal was to make Sue squirm to to get so personal or so disgusting (laughs) with the story that even Sue reacted to it so there was that between us as well and I think that you know some of the stuff has gotten so off the hook over the years that Sue's role as a stand-in for the audience is is not to be underestimated sure you know what I mean absolutely because I think there are nights where people are looking at each other like you know, is this kid about to, you know. Right. Do you think this, them seeing Sue there is like, okay, it's still normal. We're still in the universe of... Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, because I know you've alluded just in this conversation to being in Alabama and in the Deep South. Yes. And um, I read that you were born in Bakersfield, California. I was. But I guess your your seminal years of growing up were, were, in, were in the Deep South, That's Alabama. True. Yeah. I was born in, well, actually, central Mississippi. Mississippi. Um, I was born in Bakersfield, California, which at the now it's kind of cool because, you know, you have the whole Bakersfield sound with Merle Haggard and Buck right, Owens, but right. weren't into that at the time. Right. And then my folks moved us to Mississippi. I was eight. My brothers were slightly younger. Did you have a sense of yourself being different? I mean, I guess it's it's safe to say you're gay. Yeah. Uh, Though my experience with that was a little different. I've actually, I've dated boys and girls. And yeah. I've kind of gone back and forth over the years. Okay. At the moment, you know, I'm gay as balloons. You know, I have a boyfriend <laughs> that I love. But again, growing up in central Mississippi in the South, like, I didn't know gay people. Like, there were rumors about, like, the theater director and stuff. But there weren't <laughs> right. people modeling, you know, this lifestyle. It wasn't really an option. There was no MTV yet. I mean, MTV helped. But, I mean, it's like it was either, like, Mississippi or Boy George. And that was, like, too big a chasm for me to figure out where the midpoint was, you right. know. Bakersfield, California is basically a blue-collar, you know, it's agriculture, a lot yeah. of immigrants. So, but my, my parents, my dad was always active in the theater. My mom and dad were both school teachers. So, our house was always full of, they were actually, you know, gay people. But my babysitters were, you know, black and Chinese. And my parents' best friend were, you know, Latino. So, we had this 
nobody had ever talked about people based on their color, their race, their sexual identity. That just didn't happen in our house. You know, it was like right. people were just people. So moving to central Mississippi and living in a very segregated way, because that was the way that things were kind of designed down there, uh, I was old enough to know that things were different elsewhere and that this was not right. Yeah. Um, my folks were still very, you know, open about like explaining things to us. They have never heard. I, I think I tried out a racial epithet once when mm. I was a kid. And that, mm. that, that was one of the random slaps across the face. <laughs> so it, it wasn't anything that was in our family. And, but, but I was surrounded by it, you know, the way the yeah. kids at school talked and the way that their parents talked and the way that I was very different. And, you know, I wanted to be in show business. I, mm. I just, I, I used to go to the movies by myself at like 11 and 12. I would walk five miles to the movie theater and sit there and watch them. But I was, I was fascinated. I had a subscription to American Film Magazine, which is like literally at the time was, was written on a slightly lower, you know, grade level than like, okay, here's this do cinema or something. I was right, really, right, right. I had no idea what I was reading. But, um, wow. you know, yeah, I, I loved that. I was always like doing plays. I was, I started writing when I was 12. I was writing screenplays and wow. I wrote a novel about a divorcee and her children. <laughs> and I had no idea oh what I was God. doing. Right. That's um, amazing though. It was, it was really, uh, precocious certainly, but I just had this, but I, I never met anybody who got from Mississippi to New York. Right. I still don't think I know anybody. Well, I do know one, man, Kevin Sessoms, but there's not a lot of us. Right. And we didn't have friends in show business. We didn't have, you know, there was no pathway for that. So it was a little bit like, you know, people didn't even get out of Mississippi. You know, they just kind of stayed in their hometowns. And I thought, well, I'm going to figure this out. Yeah, but that must have seemed like death to you to just stay that was just not going to happen. Yeah, just no way. No. And that's why I actually became an exchange student. I had never met an exchange student, but I saw an ad on TV and it said, travel, you know, go, go somewhere else and study. And I thought, hell yes. Yeah. I've told this story before. So if you've heard it, I'm sorry. But I literally secretly sent out for the AFS brochure it was the American Field Service. Mm -hmm. And they had, you know, you open the brochure and have a map of the world. And I was in geometry at the time. I was a sophomore. So I had the compass, you know, thing with the pencil yep. and the pen. Yep. I put the pen in Meridian, Mississippi and made the biggest circle I could make to see how far I could go. And the farthest place they would send me was Johannesburg, South Africa. Wow. And this was 1987. And I, I, I was selected. It was kind of a long and arduous process. It was amazing. The, that was Mandela was still in jail, but yeah. I was there the year that apartheid just folded. Holy and so shit. it was a really exciting year to be there. Yeah. But it was then that I figured out how to do this. It's like, just go, just right, go. And, right. you know, and so it started and, you know, I went from Africa, I went off to college and then I went to New Orleans and then I went to Boston and then it was LA and then it was New right. York. So I was able to kind of just piggyback my way up keep going. and I finally did it. You know, I remember the first night we played Joe's pub. Um, which is, uh, you know, the public theater in Astor, Astor Place in New mm, York. Yeah. And I was like the 14-year-old kid, you know, right. in my garage in Mississippi is psyched, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could, yeah, I used to, uh, I was really enamored of Kiss in those oh, years. Yeah. And I, because uh, I was, I think I'm a couple years older than you, but 
um, I used to try to get them put on the makeup. Oh yeah, and lip sync concerts for the neighborhood. And this is in rural Wisconsin. So oh yeah, my dad were... actually grew up in rural Wisconsin. Oh really? Yeah yeah yeah. He oh grew cool. Up in a place called Lake Kiganza. I went that Kiganza was the elementary school you I serious? went to. We used to walk around Lake Kiganza all the time. Are you serious? I'm totally serious. You lived on Lake Kiganza for years. Oh it my was, god! Was I've been there numerous times. We, we used go to up and ice skate. We used to yeah. yeah. When it was frozen in the winter. That's crazy. And, yeah, that is crazy. I don't know, even people from Wisconsin don't know where that is. But, oh yeah, uh, yeah, he did, and then he went to Madison. Yep. Um, and got his degrees, but uh, so I also my dad was was like a Midwestern Yankee and my mother yeah. had grown up in El Paso and Meridian. It was okay. the reason Meridian became a thing. Part of it, my, my dad had studied physics and he became wow. a weatherman, but he started okay. with physics and he really was, they were putting up nuclear plants all over that part of California and he was right. very sketchy on the science. This was right. mid seventies. Right. And he was a school teacher and he, you know, used to talk about watching students just falling out of their desks on drugs. And mm. I think also with three kids and two school teachers, you know, you can live for pennies on the dollar in Mississippi. You can oh, have yeah. a very different life. Yeah. And it's also, so I, th I think there were a lot of factors that contributed to it. But we had a lovely life. I mean, we went from, you know, kind of working class, like poor to kind of upper middle class without a significant income bump just yeah. because, you know, we had a beautiful house with a swimming right. pool. So, and it was, you know, I would have, I had to, there wasn't a lot of outside influence in my life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like we didn't have a cool radio station that introduced right. music. Right. I was also the oldest. Right. So I was able to provide some of that for my younger brothers, but I didn't have anybody telling me, you know, don't, don't, don't wear the dashiki, you know, <laughs> right. it, it just wasn't. Right. Or like, here's the violent femmes, check right. them out. Like I was never that kid. Nobody right. ever like turned me on to drugs. So I was constantly like looking for stuff myself. And in Meridian, my only access to that stuff, because there was no internet, which yeah. I think, you know, right. kids can do now. So I just read I just yeah. read and read and read. Yeah. yeah, that's very cool. And then when you got to college, did that seem like the gateway to the world a little more? But you'd already been in South Africa. I had, and no. And I ended up going, I got into some really good schools. I got into NYU. Mm. I didn't get into Tisch, which is the school of the arts, yeah. which I wanted. But I didn't yeah. actually, I had what a lot of people considered talent, but I was, I was untested. I mean, right. I hadn't grown up where there were programs and right. stuff. So... You know, I didn't have a drama coach from high school writing me a letter of recommendation. Because I knew my two brothers were coming, I, I had high enough test scores and stuff that I was able to go to a state school for free. Yeah. And in Mississippi, there's the two kind of, there's Ole Miss and Mississippi State, but yeah. then there's USM, which is kind of in Hattiesburg. So it was the liberal school. Mm. It was where, you know, they had a, an arts school. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point in my life, I still wanted experience. That was all, you know, as a kid. Right. I always said I wanted to be everything a man could be. So at the state school, I was in the theater department, but I was also, they had like an accelerated academic school that you could do that was a little slight, like an AP, you know, which yeah. doesn't make yeah, sense yeah, in yeah. college, but it did. Right, right. I was in the marching band. Hmm. I was, I rushed and joined a fraternity. Wow. Which I hadn't wow. determined to do, but my dad had done it and had liked it. Yeah. And then I was elected president. I was the youngest. <laughs> yes. Delta to Delta. I was like, it's a great fraternity. And it was That's like, amazing. it was really cool. But I wanted different experiences, but I was also doing drugs and I was also sleeping with both sexes and right. going to New Orleans. So I kind of had all of these different 
influences because that's what I wanted. I wanted to see it all. I wanted to do everything. So those years in college, and and of course this was like I think this was the end of of Bush Senior. So mm -hmm. the art schools were hugely underfunded. Right. That was a huge NEA blow up with Maplethorpe and right, you know, right. So they were doing the best they could, but they were doing a lot of like barefoot in the park and ah yeah. wilderness. Yeah. So I started writing plays, mm -hmm. and I used to write these little one act plays. Uh, full of nudity and the F word, basically. <laughs> but the grad... Every young man's dream. Of course, because right. we were so starved for that. But the grad students started directing them yeah. because they were so bored of this other stuff as well. And they could get away with it because it was written by a student. So right. it was like... Um, cover. And that's that's what I was going to do. I was, mm -hmm. was going to be a writer, yeah. you know. Yeah. I got bit by the acting bug really hard in college. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, you know, so... I finished that and wrote a novel and mm. moved to New Orleans to write another novel about wow. rock and roll. Wow. And I started, I formed a punk band. I worked at Tower Records, uh, which was on Decatur Street, which is like a, the big main drag at the top of the French Quarter. Okay. And this huge Tower Records. And we worked in the tape department back in those days. <laughs> oh, the tape and, department, um, I love it. I put a punk band together with my friends to do research mm. so I could finish this novel. Right. And then, of course, that blew up and right. never finished the novel. Wow. What was being in a punk band in New Orleans like? That sounds like an amazing company. It was, it was great. It was great. And of course, this was, this was mid-90s. Yeah. So the whole grunge thing was happening. Mm -hmm. And there was still, there were so many like great punk, all of the really cool 80s punk bands were still kind, you know, and I'm talking about, you know, because my, my version of punk rock has a lot more to do with like how it makes you feel than it does with the actual music right um but you still had all those you know the melvins were kicking it yeah. and dinosaur jr was still kicking it and you know the smashing pumpkins had put out a couple of great records even yeah. like on the radio you know nirvana we you know saw kurt yeah. there um on that last tour mm. and you know saw whole the very it was the very first show they played after Live Through This. Wow! Um, it was the first time I met Courtney Love. She, mm. won't, she won't remember that one. <laughs> um, but yeah. so it was actually really really fun. And my version of punk rock that that band really encapsulated, and the Garage Dogs later did, is kind of like the New York Dolls, Stooges, Velvet Underground kind of that kind of punk rock yeah. like punk rock as lifestyle and worldview as right. opposed to punk rock as one two three four da, 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 which I yeah. love right right there's but, a place for everything right but Patti Smith does not fall into that category no. and in my mind like Patti Smith is fucking punk rock right so right. that's how I define it I feel like in some of your songs I can hear a little New Orleans I can hear a little like New Orleans almost like jazz gets in there once in a while and I'm like oh, a little you know time. and you hear yes and sometimes like uh, even a little bit of a southern accent will come out funny you know what I mean <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which I hated like I worked yeah. really hard to get and my, my parents like I say were both English teachers and my dad had that perfect non-accented Midwestern he was a meteorologist and my mother had an elegant southern accent mm. you know what i mean mm -hmm. it's kind of like boston there's katherine hepburn boston mm -hmm. and then there's you know dunkin donuts boston right. Right. and the south kind of has the same thing there's kind of you know tennessee williams southern right. accent oh, you know? it's lovely. and then there's the redneck you know right. so <laughs> i can still do it yeah so i went to south africa and you know i ended up getting a south african accent wow 
partially because I wanted to. Right. Um, so I didn't. And the other thing that was so cool about that experience was that I lived with a, a Jewish family, wow. which I had never even met Jewish people in Mississippi. Right. Um, and they were kosher. and They were considered quite... Uh, you know, observant in South Africa, whereas in this, you know, compared to like Williamsburg, you know, they're not, right. You know, they're not they, Hasidic or anything. Hasidim, right, right. Exactly. So that was just another completely different cultural experience. Yeah. That and so had. what was your reaction to that? You mean you're what, 16, 17 years old? Yes. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> no, it was, I, well, I was pretty, I was, I was just pretty smart kid. Sure. I was much smarter than I was experienced. Right. So there's always that, like putting it into practice, but right. no, I, I made a tuna fish sandwich on the wrong plate and oh, uh, it was that was that was that was bad. They were they were lovely, but it was right. like I think that it was as foreign to them that somebody couldn't understand eating kosher as it was to right. me. Like what the fuck two plates, <laughs> right? What you know? <laughs> and what is this? You know what parav? You know it was. Um, but I loved it, and I really loved getting to take off the Jewish holidays and the Christian holidays because oh, yeah. my mother went from being a school teacher. She was actually my sixth grade teacher. Went to a mm. small school. Mm. And I remember the principal. She'd been there for a couple of years and everybody, she was everybody's favorite teacher ever. And the principal pulled my mother, I was 11, she pulled the two of us aside and said, I would never do this unless it was the two of you. I think you can pull this off, but it's going to be hard. Right. I was one of 30 students in my mother's classroom. So yeah. it's like, how do the two of us get away with that without ever, you know, being accused of, you know, whatever and right. we did and then she became a principal and mm. was my principal in middle school and then high school so i was never anything but the principal's son mm. except except a late bloomer and overweight and nerdy and yeah so i mean it was really awkward so when i got to south africa it was actually the first time so wait you were overweight oh yeah Okay, like you were like a heavy kid from Mississippi, like studious, oh, backwards, gay, the whole fucking thing. It was a yeah. Do you think being in the closet was part of that? With not being able to express yourself was a part of being it. I or was it? Just, I think it was more general than sexual because yeah. I, specifically because right. my that my experience was not seemingly a lot of other people's. Right. I didn't think, oh, this is what I am. Right. I just thought I am different. Right. I thought the cheerleaders were hot and I thought the football players were hot. But in my mind, who doesn't? Like, what? they're hot, right? I mean, like, what's the problem? Um, and, and yet I was so, because I think I was a late bloomer and because I didn't, like I said, I didn't have, not only did I not have older siblings, but because I was the principal son, nobody offered me a beer. Right. Nobody no hit on me. No like no Yeah, exactly. So, you know, my experience, like all I really knew about sex was like what I read in Princess Daisy, you know, in page 37, <laughs> which we all use as masturbation material before the internet. You know what I mean? So it was like, I got it out of books and stuff. Right. And, um... And I was I was really late to that game. Yeah. And in retrospect, I think it was not so much because I couldn't figure out what I was attracted to, but more that I didn't, I, there was nobody who could kind of get a handle on me. Right. You know what I mean? So I was never dishonest about it. I, you know, I dated girls in college and had had like same sex contact as a kid and sure. like, you know, Boy Scout camp and the kind of stuff that right. Kenzie I mean, says everybody does. Absolutely. Um, so, but 
you know, nothing. I never felt like I had this. I never felt like I was coming out of the closet. When I was a senior in high school, I, I mean, sorry, senior in college, I ended up picking up a hustler in New Orleans and bringing him back home to do research. (laughs) Um, And yeah. Good for you. And that was, yeah, and that was, uh, that was cool. But the second I started sleeping with guys, I told everybody, told my parents, told everybody. It was like, okay, I'm now sleeping with both sexes. Mm And then it kind of went back and forth. You know, I ended up, um, but I still didn't date. It was like for some, that was, I don't know. I just felt like such a late bloomer. And I talk, if you come see Cocksucker Blues, I kind of go into this a little bit with the, you know, my first real relationship was with a guy who was five years older than me. I was 20 seven when it started and I my, both of my brothers had been living with their girlfriends who are now their wives for years at that point you know and most people are on their second third right maybe fourth serious relationship right. by the time you're in your third you know late 20s early 30s and I just hadn't been so I think part of my impetus to kind of jump into it was that you know I I've always had one of those bucket lists you know and I was way ahead on my reading list right. I was I was really behind on my like getting Life. laid list, right? Yeah, right. So it was time. So I just kind of nudged myself into nice. it a little bit. Um, well, that's interesting because I've been you know listening uh, again to to your songs, and I mean you fall hard. That's the impression that I get that mm-hmm. that when you fall in love, there's no like half way. You're two boots in, and you're 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 in. I'm that way with yeah. I, I but it's the same thing with like Proust. Or mm. Joyce, it's the same yeah. thing with like Patty or Lou. Yeah. It's like yeah. I have this like you know this connection um, that I really really feel. Yeah. Um, and if it's reciprocated, which you know, luckily like <laughs> Patty Smith doesn't have to vote whether I love her or not. Right. right? But it's like other human right. beings do. Right. But yeah, I think it's because you know I'm okay single. Yeah. I've spent a long time single, and I'm fine with that. I can get yeah. laid if I want to and sometimes right. I do and sometimes I don't like I'm right. a, I don't need to like I'm not one of those people who feels like you know I have to get laid to prove something you yeah. know so it's elective so like if I'm gonna do it it needs to it needs to really be like you know worth doing right as far you know yeah I think I know what you mean and I, I mean I think too that to be with someone else, you've got to have a handle on yourself. I mean, it's a little bit of a cliche, I suppose, but I think there's a lot of people who rush into relationships. I mean, you know, I've done it because then you can kind of sidestep some of the messy stuff that's inside yourself. Mm-hmm. But it sounds to me like you, for whatever inexplicable reason, you had some sort of hold on who you really were, even when you were the, like that fat kid in Mississippi or whatever. Like you had some kind of hold on like, hey, there's something in here that I need to be honest about. I, I've never questioned my gut, and I, yeah. re- I still to this day go with it. There was something about it. I always knew, and it, it's, it's not that it was special, but I was aware that it was unique. Mm-hmm. Now, whether I turned into Jeffrey Dahmer or <laughs> Didi Ramone, right. I, you know, could have gone either way. You no. know what I mean? But I'm sure that a lot of people like that have this kind of sense that, like. There were things that I cared about that other people didn't care about. And for some reason, that did not make me question my taste. Mm. You know what I mean? I think especially at that age, if you like this and everybody thinks it's not cool, 
Bakum. Right. You know, because I was also like, I, you know, as the principal's son and a hugely unpopular nerd for, you know, overweight for many, many right. years, right. I was fine with my own taste. Yeah. And I still am yeah. to a certain extent. You know, it's right. one of my favorite quotes is Duchamp, who said, you know, never become a victim of your own taste, right. which is hard to do. Right. It's a little bit like the Buddhist, like the beginner's mind, where you never want to take, you know, like, oh, I know so much. I, I've got, you know, nah, 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 you can't tell me anything. You want to experiencing things as new and as different as and, and paying attention to your own reaction. It's a fucking lost art. It is. It is. I mean, and I've got a friend who, you know, is, you know, it literally promotes himself to the world as, you know, how enlightened he is. Mm, and of course, you know, I always just want to say to him, it's kind of like that actually is going to keep you from ever becoming enlightened because if right. it's kind of like if you really go and look at Socrates and you look at the Buddha, you know, and even if you look at, you know, Christ, if you can mm -hmm. kind of piece it back together through all of the, you know, super Jesus stuff that they wrote about him <laughs> later, right. you know, everybody basically says the same thing. I know nothing. Right. Like the wiser you actually get, the more you realize how, what small percentage of what's going on you actually know. Right. Or even if you've been through an experience 10 times, that doesn't mean it's going to go the same way this time. Right. So this kind of confidence that one is enlightened, one is Oof. intelligent, one is, you know, right. is like that actually to me becomes an impediment to actually getting there. Yeah, you and know? it's an impediment to fun too because oh, think yeah. of all the things you're missing out on, right. the things you could experience and the things you could just let it go for a minute and just be in this thing, that, you know? Yes. And bringing it back to Scream Along with Billy, even if things don't go perfectly in a show, you're in it. You know, you're just allowing yourself to be in it. Let's throw it out there, people. Let's please forget about how important we think we are and all the bullshit and just mm -hmm. let it go for a night. Well, and in Provincetown, you know, they they we do uh, we do albums every Friday. Yes. Right? And we've now done like that was a, that was a publicity stunt. Mm -hmm. That was all it was. We, we used to do Tuesdays and Fridays yeah. and Tuesdays were kind of a hit. Fridays, we were competing with everything else in Promise Town on Friday right. night. So we, we started doing albums just to try to get people to come. And of course, mm -hmm. that ended up becoming this huge thing. And we people weren't doing that at the time. Now, if you look, like all over New York, people mm -hmm. are doing, you know, people are yeah. doing albums. Even bands are touring their own albums. Yeah. I mean, yeah. we had the experience when we did the Breeders' Last Splash mm -hmm. that the Breeders were doing the Last Splash like 30 wow. miles down the road. You know, we had the same thing happened when we were doing television's Marky Moon. Right. So even wow. band, but but because the album is a lost art form, it, it was yeah. a perfect idea. Yep. So even though I didn't get that idea from anybody, and a lot of my friends are doing it now, mm -hmm. I like to be very generous and think about Jungian synchronicity because mm. it's it was it's a no-brainer right you know what I right. mean like like television didn't tour Marquee Moon because they were like well scream along with Billy but you know what I mean <laughs> Probably it's not. perfect it's right. set length it's an audience you know and yeah. and also we've all had those you know experiences where we go you know to see a band that we love and and they just don't really the set list you know yeah. what I mean? They make clothes. So it's like when you go in to see an album, you like you know what they're going to play. Absolutely. Um, and I've seen, you know, I got to see Patty do the Horses 40th anniversary, which was wow. fantastic. Did you see Lou Reed do Berlin when he did it? Uh, no, uh, not too many years before his death. I know he, all about it. I had a did. lot of friends who worked on it and uh, I got a recording of it. Yeah, it's been yeah. released now. But oh, it's it has. Like, okay. Oh, yeah. And that's Bob Ezrin yeah. who, Kiss, right? Yes, and Alice Cooper and Alice as well. Cooper, yeah. Sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the famous story about Berlin, which you may if you're kind of a nerd about this, but that, you know, they went to London and did it and they all got strung out on heroin. And after Bob Ezrin kind of took the acetate and recorded his kids screaming over the yes. kids. 
says he put the whole thing in a box, mailed it to Lou Reed, said it's finished, don't ever listen to it, and then he checked himself into a, a mental health facility for really months. wow Bob Ezrin early wow. 1973 wow. motherfuckers nice and what happened to Bob Ezrin did he I mean he he recouped and he was actually involved in the restaging of Berlin he was so okay. he had, yeah yeah Hal Wilner who had you know also worked with Lou and yeah. um and yeah no he and he continued to work I believe because of Kiss he got hired by all like the whole kind of like all the hair metal stuff that came yeah. out of kind yeah. of the cross yeah, between yeah, yeah. Um, so he, he did fine for himself and he's still around. Yeah. That's so, funny. Cause I, I also associate him with all those, those like horn pieces, mm-hmm. you know, all the horn section that's in Berlin and some, some, and Alice Cooper on some, uh, just that sort of grandiose seventies kind of gl- on the mm-hmm. edge of glam rock, kind of bigger than life stuff, which, uh, and, you and, know? yeah, it's great. And the Alice Cooper stuff, which is like, you know, doesn't, you know, Alice Cooper and Kiss and a lot of people like this, it's kind of like they get too much credit and too little credit. Mm. Like they become so popular right. that you forget how good they are. You know what right. I mean? I'm actually right. writing a piece. You know, I write for Please Kill Me. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 with Legs McNeil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I toured with them, yeah. which was really stressful. Um, <laughs> you know, and Danny right. Fields, of right. course. Right, I've, like, I've heard you talk about that. Yeah, remote. that's oh, sure. a lot of pressure. It was a lot of pressure because <laughs> they all knew, like Legs is, Legs is, he never claims this, but if you Google punk, he is credited because he and his friend John Hallstrom. Did I do that? <laughs> Fuck you, Alzheimer's. Uh, <laughs> not bad. I think it's right. I'll Google that when we're done. Nice. But um, started Punk Magazine, yeah. the first magazine with Lou on the cover. And yeah. that was the first time that people associated the word punk with what was happening at CBGB's in New York in 1975. Um, so Legs is kind of considered as the person who coined that and, and labeled that movement punk. Right. Um, and, and his book is incredible. Oh, it's fucking fantastic because yeah. he knows all those people. Right. So, um, yeah, and I had a chance to... So they would read from the book and much of the book is Danny Fields. Yeah. Because yeah, Danny yeah. was one of those like Zelig characters, you right. know, because he had... He introduced Edie Sedgwick to Andy Warhol. Yeah. He produced The Doors, was roommates with Nico. Right. Um, he was the one that was sent to sign the MC5 right. in Detroit. Right. And when he was there, Wayne Kramer said, you got to see this and got the Stooges and then he produced the Ramones all those years so they would Danny would recount the Ramones some story from Please Kill Me and then I would play a Ramones song Mm. who the hell Mm. wants to hear me play the Ramones under the circumstance but (laughs) it kind of worked because I could do a Bowie an Iggy a Lou a Dolls whatever like but it's just me and a piano, which is not an instrument you associate with any of that music. No. You know? No. But I feel like sometimes that works in my favor, because if it had been me with an electric guitar, people might have been less forgiving about my style. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, and it it, it implies that you're going to be doing a copy of what they did, whereas it puts you in front of a piano and you know it's going to be different from the get-go. Right. And then your own personality comes through. It's one of the reasons why we were in the beginning much more, you know, because we've done so many of them now, but I don't do piano based records. Right. Right. I just don't. Um, We eventually did like Nina Simone, but one of the reasons Nina Simone is one of my 
all time. I mean, anybody who knows yeah. Nina Simone, she's one of their favorite people. Right. You can't really she get is. better than Nina Simone. Right. And I got to see her twice before she died. Really? Not because I'm cool, but because some my ex boyfriend, God, God love him. I mean, you know, even, even the Venice story. But yeah. she, uh, you know, she, after Dr. King was assassinated, she renounced her American yeah. citizenship and said, right. "Fuck you," and went off to Liberia, and you know, had a career in France and you yeah. know Europe, and then had late in the game had a couple of things happen. Chanel used My Baby Just Cares For Me in a commercial that blew up. Mm -hmm. And then there was that movie La Femme Nikita that right. had used her stuff. So she all of a sudden was selling records in the States and she came back in the last two or three years of her life and did a couple of shows. I saw her um, in Seattle first, which was one of the first shows, maybe the first show she had done in the States in like 20 odd years. Wow. And um, it was all soccer mom audience, right? right. And so, you know, <laughs> Nina Simone, she did Mississippi Goddamn and she'd throw yeah. up the black power sign and all the soccer moms would throw it back and she would just <laughs> stare at the audience. She didn't even, it was great. Yeah. And um, and then about two years later, my brother Paul from yep. the Garage Dogs and I yep. went and saw her at the Boston. I, they changed the fucking name so many times. What is the place on the water? It's like Harbor or something? Or, oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. It's, um, um, you, they called it a million different things. Harper's you know, Ferry. Some, yeah, something like yeah, that. It was, it was big outdoorsy yeah, yeah. with the tent and yeah. stuff, but it's on the water. Yeah. And um, it was, that was fantastic. And she was significantly older looking yeah. and seeming just a few years later. Yeah. And at the end of the concert, she, she just looked at, it, at the audience and she said, I will not see you again, wow. but I wanted to thank you. Wow. And she sang Bob Marley's redemption song. And we were, I mean, it was like, it uh, was this, it was, and then she died. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she must've known at that point that she was ill. She must've known that that was going to be. Yeah. Ill. It yeah. was uh remarkable. Yeah. Nina Simone. Yeah. Wow. So. <laughs> where do we go from there? I know. <laughs> so you and your brothers, um, you got involved with in, in the Garage Dogs, right? Which is a band with your brothers Matt and Paul. Yes. Um, so they obviously followed in your footsteps up to a certain point. Um, yeah, it was you had more, a good thing going. Yeah, everybody came at it from different places. My brothers and I were not terribly close growing up. Okay, we were really, really different. And yeah. my parents, I think, saved our asses by never saying to any of us, "Why aren't you more like a brother?" I was the one that you know, made straight A's and spent all of my time, you know, I was kind of a goody two shoes. I never got into any trouble with anything. My brother Paul was very popular. He was very handsome. He was, and yeah. Matt was just a jock. Like any sport you put him at, he, you know, played, played football, he became the quarterback and, you know, the pitcher on the baseball team, the goalie mm -hmm. on the soccer team. Mm -hmm. And, um, and when I got a little bit older, when I was after college, when I was in New Orleans, they would come and visit me because everybody was doing drugs at that point. So I, I mean, and when I say drugs, it was like, you know, smoking pot and right. getting drunk. But right. then I was finally, I was never the cool older brother. Mm -hmm. I was kind of, you know, mm -hmm. the nerdy one upstairs. I was something out right. of a fucking Bronte novel. Um, <laughs> you know, and these guys, like, I was not going to help my brothers get laid. Like the best right. thing they could do was just pay no attention to me oh, and go do their own thing. Yeah. So finally, I was kind of the cool older brother. And then when my parents moved to Alabama, because my dad, became the weatherman in Mobile, mm. um, we would get together on the holidays. And what we noticed was that all three of us had learned to play the guitar. Everybody was in a band. Wow. And it was like really strange. And 
So we just would get shit faced and make up songs, yeah. you know, and yeah. it, it is true. And um, <laughs> we ended up calling ourselves the musical Nazis. And it was a joke because right. in 1994, like Nazis didn't exist. They, they right. were not a real thing. It would have been calling yourself, you know, the musical Mussolini. Right. You know what I mean? It was just or, you know, Genghis Khan and the right. whatevers. Right. Um, and our music was so offensive. Like mm -hmm. we would just try to crack each other up by, you know, sure. so we would ad lib these foul lyrics, which right. you can hear the first record is basically <laughs> the best of those. Um, and, but everybody kind of, we all kind of came to it, you know, came to it on our own and then started to play together. And then, and then that really developed into yeah. something. So it was really cool. And you guys kind of toured, you lived together. It sounds like we for did for like 10 years in, in wow. our, uh, in, uh, Teal Square. Okay. So that was kind of, did that feel like family all over again? Or was that just kind of a different... The, we just, we became best friends. Yeah. We still are. You know, I mean, yeah. I call my brothers as often or more often than I call anybody else. And I, I don't know if it's because we weren't close growing up or, I mean, we didn't, we weren't like, it wasn't, you know, like dysfunctional we just had different interests we just didn't right. hang out right. but i don't think that's unusual for no. siblings in that age um no we just we really liked each other and we all we you know when but when we hit boston people went crazy because mm. we would take our clothes off on stage we would do drugs on stage but my brother would brand himself on stage wow. we used to yeah so i mean we were doing somewhere between like gg allen and like <laughs> early you know roxy music stuff and boston wow. was like what the fuck right and um it was really really fun i also my other kind of entree to boston was ryan landry had just left provincetown and got hired to spearhead a production of the Rocky Horror Show at Mass Art. Nice. And Rick Berlin, who is a famous, esteemed, fantastic Boston mm -hmm. rock and roll legend, mm -hmm. had been my first, you know, entree into the scene. My friend Devin, who was the Garage Dogs bass player, took me to see Rick, who was doing Monday Nights at Jacques. Mm -hmm. And Rick gave me a chance and I did a couple of sets and then he gave the Garage Dogs their first gigs. We always thank Rick Berlin because he wow. really helped. And then we had this kind of scene happening in kind of the mid late nineties here. Um, and there were like great bands like Bo Berenger who's in the wrong shapes. Now had this band called make Lisa rich, the bourbon princess mm. who's now doing it's uh, you know, Monique who's now doing alien knife fight down in Austin, wow. uh, white Iris, the Tobin bridge, you know, Matt York is so, and I don't think any of those bands are together, but all of those musicians are, significantly more are all still playing now yeah. as is Rick with the yeah. nickel and dime band. And he put this thing together called the rock and roll romance revival where all of the bands would play in one night and they booked like this huge thing. So that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, and, and the dogs, you know, we got a chance to play, we got a chance to play CBGBs before it closed, which mm. was really, really cool. Mm. Um, but eventually like we released our third album and, you know, we ended up packing the Middle East and we packed Bill's bar mm -hmm. and it was like, let's go to a bigger city. Right. And that's when we went to Los Angeles and we had a great three or four years there. Um, and that was really when, you know, we started 
that was like we met, you know, Raymond Pettibone and we met, mm. you know, Stephen Perkins and Jack Pearson. Wow. And so we started to have this kind of layer of this kind of patina of like, you know, and Scream Along still has some of that because we have some incredibly esteemed fans who are yes. very vocal about it, which right. is super cool. Right. As John Waters says, I'm the most famous, not famous person ever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. You've got Michael Cunningham yeah. and you've got uh, Lily Taylor, I think. Lily, I know. Well, and Gordon Gano from The Femmes. Who's right. All over, That's right. You know, he sings with me on Venice. Yeah. He, the yeah. Femmes were, had not played together in a while. Yeah. Um, and I met all, they all just came to my shows. But, um, yeah, I mean, and the one benefit of doing Nashville at at uh, Joe's Pub, that almost career-ending <laughs> experiment in guerrilla theater, mm-hmm. uh, was that Robert Altman's widow um, came, and mm. Catherine, and she and I became really good friends, and she wow. came to all of our shows, and wow. you know, she brought Ronnie Blakely, and, you know, the Cohen brothers, and, wow. you know, so it's like Cunningham, Michael himself, you know, says, you know, if you ever go see Scream Along with Billy at Joe's Pub, you know, you have the artist table, and you've got, like, Raymond Pettibone, and Kathy Opie, and Jack right. Pearson, and then you have Oren Moverman, and Catherine Altman, and the Cohen brothers, and right. over here, you've got Gordon Gano, and you got Lily, so it's really this, like, and, and also, like, within the New York scene, you know, people like Justin Vivian Bond, and Amber mm. Martin and John Cameron mm. Mitchell mm. work with us, you know, whenever they're around. Yeah. So it's always, for some reason, we still exist in this kind of, you know, not quite establishment, but, you know, mostly pay the rent, mostly. Right, right. that's pretty that, good. I like it better like that. Like, yeah. I think that Scream Along still feels like a secret that yeah. you know and not everybody knows. Right. And that was especially like my Generation X, like, you know, we like stopped listening to R.E.M., you know, when they got popular yeah. kind of thing. Um, to, to, I, I hope everybody appreciates I've tried to keep us from getting rich and famous because I wanted the experience <laughs> you've done it so well thank you it's kind of amazing actually yeah. um, but it's also you know we did my friend Nora Burns who's a, a wonderful performer out of New York and I travel and perform with her in her uh, one woman show mm-hmm. which is strange because I'm in her one woman show but it, it kind of makes sense if you yeah, see it sure um but uh, she brought the New Yorker to see Scream Along in season three, which right. uh, I didn't know they were there. Right. And right. the night was a fucking disaster. My boss was going to fire me again. We almost got fired a lot in the early days of Scream Along. Can imagine. Um, just, you know, and there was the whole, we actually had a t-shirt that was like, Billy did not shoot up at the piano. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the early days were kind of, right. you know. It's a little rough. rough. Yeah, it was rough. <laughs> but um, she, I was trying to like, get her to talk to us again and so I had told Sue I had this great idea I was like I'm gonna blindfold myself put a cigarette in my mouth and stand up against a wall and Sue I I had this turkey roasting pan and I had her fill it with like three cans of whipped cream Mm -hmm. and I was like we'll call the boss up and she can throw the big pie in my face right Mm -hmm. and this was in the days there were probably what 30 people at Scream Along in those days so anyway she, my boss, like, just ignored us. So I'm standing up against the wall with a blindfold and a cigarette. Sue's standing there with this thing, and my boss is just not even playing along. Mm. And it was like she was really mad. Yeah. And this didn't help. Yeah. This is not how she wanted <laughs> right. to resolve this. <laughs> right. So then the audience starts chanting her name. Jen, Jen, Jen. Also not helpful. Right. She got so mad, she walked up, picked it up, threw it on the ground, and said, fuck you, Billy, and left the room. Wow. 
At which point I took off the blindfold, sat down and was like, <laughs> and we were like, well, that's it. We're done. And right, right. two weeks later, I got a phone call and it was kind of like, hi, uh, listen, so we, uh, one of our reporters just did a story about you and we wanted to know if we could get a picture. And I was like, sure, who is this? And we were like, the New Yorker. I was that's like, crazy. oh, fuck you. Yeah, right, right. And they had to call me like three or four times. And then when we realized what show they were at, it was like, that oh, no. fucking disaster. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, Jesus. And at the end of the day, though. It came out and Hilton Alls, God love him, wrote right. this really glowing piece and I was right. a cartoon in the fucking New Yorker. It was That's, so cool. That is amazing. He thought it was all absurdist theater. Um, you know? I guess it was, <laughs> yeah. you know? Just in fact, of, it was, yeah. But, uh, it was, uh, yeah. No, I wish he'd come to see one of the oh other ones. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, and he's a terrific writer too. That's oh, really, yeah. I mean, he is. It was. Yeah. And, you know, the New Yorker, you know, it, it's like he gave me so many amazing like poll quotes to use from that because a poll quote is like when you know when right, people right. write it you want to pull stuff and yes um i think you know, he said you were poignant and beautiful yes, i think was the, yes, yes i have it <laughs> the one uh the one i wanted to use was big instrument <laughs> <laughs> sometimes right, she right. says no right. but uh but what happened was so then the next summer right we get this audience full of people who were there because the New Yorker told them it was cool to be there right and they had no idea what we were doing they didn't care what we were doing and yeah. so we myself and the audience like just slowly got them out yeah cause yeah. you know it's it's still, it's amazing because I think sometimes people have heard about it and it's not to everyone's taste. And I'm glad right. it's not to everyone's right. taste. Um, but at the same time, you know, periodically, like we'll have a group of like, you know, I don't want to pick on the bachelorette parties. I actually like the bachelorette parties, but I, but sometimes you get a group of people like that. And trust me, like the, the bachelorette parties look like silver medalists compared to like the bitchy queens from fucking Boston that you can right. get sometimes. Right. So you get these collect clicks of people who are much more interested in their group than in what's going on and they can be very disruptive. Right. And people will periodically say, do you want me to get rid of them? And I'll say, oh no. And I can usually tell a story and it's like <laughs> everybody, everybody who's a regular knows what I'm doing. Right. And so I'll start this story um, and, and eventually get them out of the room. Yes, yep. It's interesting. I have seen you do uh, the piano bar as well in the kind of at, in Provincetown. Mm -hmm. And it's a different crowd and oh, it's yeah. a different. And I remember uh, being in the bar one night when you were um, when you were playing and, and these two guys next to you kept asking for Journey. Oh. And I was kind of on the other side of the bar and I don't really, my eyesight is not great. And I thought, oh, that's sweet. It's like two old queens that are like reliving the 80s and they're, you know, they're going to do a couple of lines and they're going to listen to Journey and relive it. And then these guys get up and walk past me and they're like 22. Yeah. And I'm like, why? I know. Why Journey? But, um, it, no, it's, I and you know, the, the, my early days of being really contentious with those people, yeah, like yeah. by the time I started doing Scream Along and I actually realized you know, like what's going on at the Gifford house. Like I started becoming a little bit more magnanimous. Mm -hmm. You learn a lot about the world. And the thing about the Gifford house that's so interesting is, is that I can play on a Friday night in July mm -hmm. and I'm the biggest rock star in the world. Like the place is packed. You can't right. get in. People are screaming. It's great. And 24 hours later, I got a bar full of people who have never heard of me. Don't right. give a fuck. <laughs> And they all want to, you know, they want to hear the same five songs white people want to hear every night. Right. They want to hear Piano Man. They want yep. to hear Bohemian Rhapsody. They want to hear Stairway to Heaven. They want to hear Hotel California. And it's like, 
you know, and I've seen this, like these people, they want me to sing it at the piano bar. Tomorrow night, they'll all go sing these songs at karaoke. The next night, they put them on at the jukebox. And it's like, I mean, maybe black people and Chinese people and Latinos all have the same cultural five songs. That's right. fine. Right. I can only speak to, uh, you know, our white brothers and sisters out there. But it's kind <laughs> of like, and I keep saying to them, you know, but so what I do, especially on Saturday night. We are one of the only free places to go in Provincetown on a Saturday mm -hmm. night. And to be honest with you, if you can already afford to come to Provincetown in July, yeah. it's like you don't need to skip the $10 cover charge. Right. But that does give you some ideas. So we are the only free place to gather on a Saturday night. And so that, you know, there is a little bit of that kind of middle of the road taste level. And I have to win that audience over from scratch because some of them have never been to a piano bar that plays what I play. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And I'm like, you'll like this. I promise you'll like right. this. You know, right. you'll remember these songs. And, um, but I, I'm, I'm nicer on Saturday nights than I am on other nights of the week. Like yeah. by the time we get to Sunday, it's like, I don't even do requests. Right. I mean, that's my job <laughs> and I don't do it. I just won't. Um, well, there's only so much one person can I just, do. I just won't do it. I yeah. know. But on, on Saturdays, you know, I, they want to hear Piano Man. So I do it. Mm. And I found a way. I have to do it in such a way. It's, it's not as bad as I play Christmas gigs. Yeah. I yeah. play two gigs where I have to do Christmas music. And I've got to find a way to do that, you know, without shitting on Jesus, you right. know, yeah. but at the same time without completely selling my soul, you well, know. So it's like I have to find that happy medium. Yeah. I thought Old Little Town of Bethlehem, New York was really quite moving. Thank you. Thank and you I thought the much. video for it was really good with you with the bow West. tie. Yeah. yeah it was Nina really... West shot that. Yeah. We made a lot of videos. Uh, one of the things we did, especially with Venice, most yeah. of the songs from Venice yeah. had videos. Yeah. And one of the things I did was I reached out to friends of mine who had never directed a video before, but had done other stuff. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. my friend Melissa Kinski worked in film. Yeah. My friend Chris Kelly was a theater director. Uh, Nina West was a photographer. So it's like I went to these people and I said, I think you'll be a great video director. And I we had no budget for any of them, but I gave them total artistic control. I yeah. stayed yeah. out of it and I got them back up, whatever you need, actors, locations, whatever, I can make that happen. And so you, we ended up with this, this beautiful collection of these gorgeous videos yeah. made by these first time directors and really interesting. And, you know, I, I am smart enough to, you know, I think people think I have more control or, or, or exercise more artistic control over stuff that's going on than I do. I think that my most important role, especially like what we're doing at once, which is we try to, I, I want it to be a different show every time, right? but I want it to, I want it to, I want you to get the same feeling. I want it to be, uh, you feel like it was worth coming out and seeing this live, but I don't want to do, you know, we'll do Joni Mitchell and then we'll do yes, right. you know, and then we'll do, I think next one, we're going to do Dylan in March. Oh, wow. Um, everybody wants cool. Dylan. So, uh, but anyway, it's, um, I, I, it's kind of, I curate it. I actually get a bunch of artists and a bunch of different people. And so I feel like I'm curating a song list, but I'm also like curating like, which people, which songs, like that kind of thing. And then I leave it alone. I don't tell people, you know, how to sing, what to sing. And the other thing is, is that I, Sue and I build the shows in real time. Okay. You know, did you see Blue Christmas? I the did, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. So we ended up, 
a couple of times this year, we play at Club Coming in New York a lot. We yeah. play it once, and we play at the Grotto Bar in Provincetown, and our new manager has been very open to letting us do these off-season gigs. Yeah. We're playing yeah. Valentine's on Friday. Yeah, that's cool. So, we like Blue Christmas, we did it all three locations. Um, and we just did the same thing, where we did like Bowie in Provincetown, Lou Reed in New York, and then we did the Mishmash at once. Yeah. Um, but... The show, the Blue Christmas show, even though we had roughly the same kind of pool of songs that we were pulling from, ended up being completely different every time because, the sh- you know, it, going back to like the stories and stuff like that, yeah. I don't write these shows. Right. I don't plan to talk. Sometimes right. I talk a lot. Sometimes I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it can be if an audience comes in and people are like, you know, talk, talk, rant, rant, tell a story, like that shuts me down. Oh, yeah. Um, I tell stories based on whether they come up or not. Right. You know? Right. And we are famously like changing the set list constantly or mm. I'll pull a song out and Sue has to play it by ear <laughs> um, because we're trying to build the show based on like what happened in the news, yep. what's the weather, right? you know, how's everybody feeling, yeah. you know, how did that last song work? And so the song, the, the shows, if they feel personal it's kind of because they are because we actually start like negotiating with the audience you know and every once in a while you have these moments at scream along and of course i've never seen one honestly right 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 right. you're in it all the time but there are these really crazy moments where it feels like the whole thing just blasts off into someplace else yeah and the audience feels it and we feel it yeah and the audience gives you know us credit but as Sue and I said look if we knew how to do that every time we would do that every time <laughs> absolutely right? so it's like it, but that we kind of form this pact and on the best nights like we kind of build it to this like kind of very specific place yeah. and it's really authentic it's yeah. really like you we're totally really there and um and so even though a lot of people would be like you know if you've got to do three shows it's a pain in the ass to do three completely different shows as compared to doing, you know, just doing one show over and over. We're not going to do that. Right. You know, it's boring. It is boring. And, um, and that's not why people come. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Coming to be like bored. Right. Or see just the same show you did last night, only maybe a little bit, you know, better or worse or whatever. I mean, I saw you guys do OK Computer a few years ago, the Radiohead album. <laughs> yeah. And that is a tough, I mean, that is tough music oh to God. do. I don't, yeah. you know, and I know that you, you struggled a little bit with it because you talked about mm-hmm. it during the show. Yeah. Uh, but that built up to this incredible moment where uh, I think Darlene had come up to do Creep mm-hmm. at the end. And I think the entire bar was singing and or screaming along. And that's um, not the only moment of the night that was like that, 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 that just sort of rose to this crescendo of mm-hmm. uh, just... It was amazing. It was really good. It's great. And we, you know, the thing I love about the audience, that's the best thing. I mean, we've talked about the famous people, but we also have like the bar backs. You know, we have a huge contingent of like the 20 year old straight kids. We've got, you know, the, the middle aged like rockers, like the people who are at Woodstock or who are at the, you know, the music, we get music fans, you know? So it's like, and, and, a lot of people, especially in Provincetown, love the fact that it's kind of an even mix of like gay people, lesbians, right. and straight people, which you don't get in, you know, as much as you should, right. especially in a place like Provincetown. Right. You should all be mixed up all the time. Well, that seems to me the promise of Provincetown from the get go. I mean, that's always what I felt. I mean, the first time I came to Provincetown, I was 15 and, you know, I'm whatever, nominally straight or whatever. Um, 
But it felt like an open place. It felt mm-hmm. like, no, this is okay. It's okay. It's like, you know, Tangiers for Burroughs or whatever. You know, it's like you can come here and be yourself and nobody's mm-hmm. going to give you shit. And it's whatever it is. It's whatever you make of it. And I don't know if that's changed or not. I know the economics of Provincetown have changed. Mm-hmm. And that is a little bit scary as far as the future of things like what you do and, and other people who are doing work like yours mm-hmm. in Provincetown just because... Like everywhere, it's just so fucking expensive. It is, and I, I, so you know, sometimes I bemoan the fact that like, I, I should have a lot of competition there. You know what I mean? There should be right. a lot of kids with great ideas nipping at my heels the way right. that I nipped at these guys' heels. You know right. what I mean? Right. And I think that I may be the last person I know who moved to Provincetown broke. Right. Well, it feels like you're walking into an old Provincetown thing when you go to, to, to Grotto to see you out there. It feels like this is true to what Provincetown has been. And it's also a thing that's happening now. It's right. not like a throwback. Yeah, we did fucking Billie Eilish. Right. Which, is, you know, <laughs> which I'm sure half of the people were like, None of them knew who they were. Right. Because it right. had just come out. We do right. that every, that, that started a couple of years ago. Um, and I'm trying to remember the one that we did, but we, these years, like we we want to do a new record because we do, and we did not repeat records until very, very recently. Um, and that was just because like you get to a point, I don't want to do records. I don't want to do right. Just to not, you know, and, and fill time. Yeah. I mean, we did Sergeant Pepper's, 10 years ago it's like they'll come back and listen to Sergeant Peppers you know who doesn't want to hear Sergeant Peppers if, yeah if, and there's you know, a lot you can do with example. it I mean, sure the- um, but we did uh, a couple of years ago we did um, Vampire Weekend's new record which I yeah. love yeah. and we did the new Blondie record Pollinator just a few years ago and then yeah. last year we did St. Vincent and then this year we did Billie Eilish so mm. it kind of keeps it fresh you know, and we we nailed it with Billie Eilish because you know she just swept all the awards. Right, and stuff she got like huge. That. Yeah, that was very prescient. We're going to take a short break right now and be back in just a few moments. During the break here, I just want to say one of the things that works oddly well in "Scream Along with Billie" is when Huff and Goldberg do a song that would seem to be the opposite of the show's wing it aesthetic. For example, a Joni Mitchell song. Now, Joni's angelic soprano and Huff's sandpaper tenor would seem like tones from different vocal universes. However, his cover of Mitchell's Richard is genuine and moving. This one is taken here from the live album. I saw Richard was a Troyd in 68 and he told me all 
romantics meet the same fate someday Cynical and drunk and boring someone in some dark cafe You laugh, he said, you think you're immune Don't look at your eyes, they're full of moon You like roses and kisses and pretty men To tell you all those pretty lies Pretty lies When you're gonna realize they're only pretty lies Only pretty lies Just pretty lies You put a quarter in the world, it's earth And he pushed three buttons and the thing began to work And a barmaid came by in fishnet stockings and a bow tie And she said, jig up now, it's getting on time to close Richard, you haven't really changed, I said It's just that now you're romanticizing some pain that's in your head You got tombs in your eyes, but the songs you punch to dreams Listen, they sing a love so sweet, love so sweet When you're gonna get yourself back up on your feet Oh, love can be so sweet Love so sweet Richard got married to a figure skater And he bought her a dishwasher And a coffee percolator And he drinks at home now Most nights with the TV set on And all the house lights left up bright Gonna blow this damn candle out I don't want nobody coming over to my table I got nothing to talk to anybody about All good dreamers pass this way someday Hide behind bottles in dark cafes, dark cafes. Only a dark cocoon before I get my gorgeous wings and fly away. Only a face, these dark cafe days. I wanted to ask about the LA experience too of sort of bottoming out with with drugs and mm-hmm. being an addict and then coming back and and I mean I have a history of, of drug addiction and alcoholism myself and you know I've kind of dealt with that I wondered if 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 finding or reigniting the creative spark and, and using your creativity was a way out of that hole in which you know the only thing that makes a difference is what what you what you're holding you know what you've got in your pocket that you're going to get high with right um that's a really good question i was always 
a very specific kind of drug addict in the sense that, you know, if I, because I've been on heroin, I mean, I'm off it now, but I was on it for the last 18 years. Um, But I never owed dealers money. Mm-hmm. I never stole money from people. And it's like, I would sometimes get sick. Yeah. But I would have no pay. I would be like, well, you did this to yourself. So yeah. you're just going to have to suck it up because that's the cost. And so, you know, and when I finally quit, not that long ago, uh, you know, a year ago, almost, um, I was just, I was ready to let it go. I had a, a period, so for me... The, the the bottoming out in Los Angeles was basically I just was done with life. Like this breakup was just hugely cynical to me. And it wasn't that I missed him so much or I missed yeah. the relationship so much. It was that a lot of the story that kind of came out at the end was a little bit like there is no Santa Claus. Mm. This isn't really a democracy. Those kind of like, holy shit. Like the, the whole game's rigged. Yeah. And and that's what I had a hard time getting out from under for a while. Mm. And I met this beautiful girl and she wanted to smoke. She was smoking crack and I smoked crack. And to be honest with you, we had a wonderful time. I mean, I feel <laughs> guilty about it because I know that's not the narrative. But that's I mean, okay. it was a little bit like, well, fuck it. This is all going to hell anyway. So you may right. as well enjoy yourself. Right. Um, and we did. The bigger problem I had was that you often think you're doing this in a vacuum, especially mm-hmm. since I was able to keep it kind of in control to the point where I never got, I didn't get arrested. I didn't, you know, get disowned. I didn't like, there's a lot of rock bottom I didn't hit. So I was able to let it go for a very long time. But the creativity part of it was, I, I just wouldn't let it interfere too much. I mean, the thing about, you know, when I've been doing Coke or crack or speed or something like that, I actually write a lot. Right. You know, <laughs> it does. You know I think that the, the heroin, the reason that, you know, because I went through a really rough about five or six years where I lost my girlfriend. I lost my best friend. I lost my dad. We had a lot of trouble. I had, there was a lot of just my house burned down on Christmas. Oh, like there Jesus. were a lot of like big things that happened in a short period of time that um, I kind of self-medicated to function through them because there were also a lot of people around me who needed support that I needed to try to be there for. Um, And then it kind of had served its purpose. If you're going to use stuff like that to self-medicate, you also have to pay the piper, which means when you kind of have come out the other end of it, you have to give it back. So the thing about heroin and creativity was that I realized that I had kind of been in the same mood for 15 years, <laughs> which was great. Yeah, you know what I mean? Right. When the option was being suicidal or being depressed or right. whatever, you know, heroin was like a big blanket I put on every morning and faced the world mm-hmm. so that I didn't feel anything too terrible. Right. But I also didn't feel anything that great, yeah. you know? Yeah. And especially if you're trying to be creative, if the whole point of it is, is, you know, especially my craving for new experiences, it's one thing, you know, it's, you can have all the experiences in the world, but if you're on the same cocktail all the time, you know, things only get to you so right. much. And, you know, I started dating shortly. I mean, it was a some of the responses to getting off of heroin were my, my libido rebounded in a way that I was not expecting. Um, right. But also like the kind of like all of the feels that you get 
when you start like dating somebody, which I hadn't done in a long time. Right. Um, I don't know that I would have, I don't know that I would have taken that leap if I were still on heroin because, um, heroin makes you very self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You're fine. Mm-hmm. But, um, I think I had just done enough of it. I yeah. think finally, you know, I was done. So I think, Creatively, I just incorporated my drug use into my show. That was right. the thing about Scream Along that right. was so great was that right. I was basically, uh, you know, a famous drug addict. So <laughs> I kind of like could tell myself, it's like, well, you got to keep doing drugs because right. that's part of the show. <laughs> right. So I kind of was very sneaky in that respect in that I gave myself a job that not only allowed for me to continue to use drugs, but kind of encouraged it. <laughs> um, even though most people in the audience thought I was lying. They didn't believe that anybody right. could have done what I said I was doing and be doing what I was doing. But right, right. I had a lot of practice. Right. <laughs> um, so I don't have terrible feelings about those moments. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm sorry that it contributed to the breakup of the band, but I think that the band was breaking up anyway because we had been doing it for 10 years and it was still costing us money. Mm-hmm. And I think we had had so many moments where we were on the cusp of breaking through and it didn't happen. Right. And that kind of, you know, right. this You is, can only do that so many times. You can only do it so many path. times. Yeah. So you're in Garage Dogs, you're having a good time, things are going well, you've kind of tapped out the, the scene here in Boston and you decide LA is the place we have to go, you're meeting people out there, Things seem to be clicking fairly well, and then it kind of falls apart. It did. Um, Part of it was, I mean, the the short answer is, you know, that I was a drug addict. But the truth is, I'd been a drug addict the entire time we were doing the Garage Dogs. And it's not like, you know, neither of my brothers know how to, you know, pick up a straw either. So I think that (laughs) that's the easiest way to do it. I think what part of it was, was also the fact that... We had been doing this now for 10 years. We had been on the, and this was, this was still the end of the era, or at least we were still the end of the era where you got signed, you had a, you know, a breakthrough record. And then, you know, that there was this very clear definition between local band doing this for a hobby and professional band. Those lines have blurred a little bit in the years since, um, Partially because the whole record company system broke down. I mean, look at the, the history of Scream Along. I yes. mean, you guys put out two, two records. You know, they're out there. You can get them, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. It's not a part of a major label. No. But you're doing it. Sure. And they you're, are. you're, in a sense, touring. Exactly. And, you know. On our own. And, you know, so we're doing it without a record label. I don't know that a record label would do much except probably find one thing that worked and exploit it to a right. point that would make us sick of doing it. Right. Um, so we may have survived it. We could, you know, but but Sue and I both have trouble paying our rent sometimes. Yeah. I mean, it's not like we generate that much income. Right. Um, and yet at the same time, it's also like, but how many musicians out there would trade places with me in a heartbeat, right? right. So there's, there, you try to remember that as well. And mostly I'm happy. I don't have a lot of regrets. I don't have a lot. I mean, money would be great, but my mother said to me a long time ago, and, and this is also speaking with the kind of privilege that I probably have more money than 89% of the people on planet Earth, even right. though to me, you know, Hello. not yeah. so much. Yeah. Um, and I also have a lot of rich friends, rich to me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the funny thing about it is, is that... You know, if you have more money going out than you have coming in, it doesn't matter if you're dealing with tens of dollars or millions of dollars, you're broke. I don't know many people who aren't one $5,000 emergency away from what the fuck are we going to do. Right. 
Um, and that's just the nature of it right now. I think that it is for a lot of people, but uh, that's one thing we all have in common on right. both sides of the political spectrum. Yeah, for sure. How do you keep going creatively when that's the reality? I mean, I think that that kind of money tension and stress works against a lot of people who might want to do more creative stuff, yes. whether it's music or otherwise. They're like, oh, fuck, but I got the bills, the rent, the this, the that. What a lot of people do. I, we may be the only people I know that have never done a, any kind of public crowdsourcing. Ever. Okay. You know, and that's most of my friends, when it's time to put out a record, you do that. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about it seriously. The, the, the straight trade-off of something where you basically ask people to buy the album now. It's like, give me 20 bucks now and I'll send you the record when it's done. That kind of transactional thing, I totally get. But I had a... a very good friend of mine say to me once you know it's like i would like to give you money i mm -hmm. think there are other people that would like to give you money for sure there's no way to do that right except to go up to the front of the grotto bar and put it in the tip jar so i've thought about maybe doing a patreon thing it's because and i think about it when it's when i'm gonna have to stop doing this i yeah. mean when it gets to that point and sometimes it does i mean even this winter i've had a few moments where it's like mm -hmm. i just need to go get a job at a pizza hut or any place just to just yeah. you know yeah you know, and I always have, you know, this this is actually the first winter uh, that I've made my entire income off of writing these articles yeah. and performing. Wow. Um, but there's, but but it's been lean, bad, right. you know, tough. Right, right. Um, I think for me, the joy of doing it is still so great. Like if I'm in a foul mood, mm. the one thing that cheers me up is, is doing a show. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I actually, you know, I have a new boyfriend, Christopher now, yes. and we laughed because, you know, when I'm performing six nights a week in the summertime, you know, people would say to him, it's like, oh, it must be like having scream along all the time. And he would say, yes, <laughs> yeah. all of the time. <laughs> but I said, oh, but it's so much better than when I don't perform for three weeks because right. I'm so it's almost therapy for me sure oh you I know? can see that I mean it's, well, it's actually is there I yeah. basically go there and everybody else pays to listen to my problems <laughs> but you know it's um, perfect but I think that to I don't I don't view them as necessarily being related you know my dad I quote my dad a lot but it's because yeah. I miss him but he was really smart and yeah. he said you know there will be times in your life where you'll do something great, this like amazing thing, and you will be greeted with crickets. You know, mm -hmm. no one. And then like you'll have something that you kind of phone in or have to rush through and you get way too much credit. Right. He said, so it doesn't always really like calibrate correctly, but over the course of a long life, it kind of works itself yeah. out. Yeah. And so I don't feel like like the quality of my work is remotely dependent on how much money I have or don't have in the day. You know what I mean? Right. And so it's like, I, and I, I can, you know, try very hard not to feel sorry for myself. I have a lot of peers who people my age who do roughly the same schedule I do, who own two and three houses. Um, and sometimes you do want to be like, yeah, right. um, but that's because they all charge $35 a ticket to go see them and right. I play for free where I can um, and there's a quality to luck of luck to some of that stuff you have oh, there's a quality of luck to all yeah, I've right. been hugely lucky sure. I mean there's a lot of people who have no interest in hearing me complain about you know <laughs> you know what I mean right, it right. kind of goes all the way down the chain so yeah I mean the money piece has been hard but um, at the same time 
the thing that I try to remember is that I have, there are times where I've had more money than I needed and times when I didn't have enough. And if you really ask me to go back, even over this last year, and tell you what moments were which, I can't remember. I don't remember that. I don't remember were we really broke then or did we have plenty of money. It's so... Uh, I feel like my art, my career artistically as well as my business acumen, both personally and professionally, are kind of unrelated. Mm. So I can have incredibly great creative moments regardless of whether I have money or not. And I can have money problems regardless of what's going on with my career. And right. so I just try to manage the money as best I can and, and keep this kind of sacred. You right. know what I mean? Just right. keep this kind of out of the plebeian thing about money if I can. Yeah, and I think that's that's amazing when people can do that because I think the trade-off is that if it just becomes about money, then it just changes the game in a way that I think is not always good. Right. And and it's and it's so like how much you know how much money do you think you're going to make as a as a creative person in this world today? I mean. It, it's almost like you're setting yourself up to be disappointed and then walk away exactly. from it because it didn't work out and I'm not rich. Right. Um, no, you can't do that. And, you know, I, I, I think you're exactly right. It's like, what do you actually expect? Right. You know what I mean? It's, um, I mean, I I think it's just much, just to, to have a platform, to have an ability, to have clubs that book me, to have people that come and see me. Like, mm-hmm. that's the transactional nature of this that works for me. Right. And I don't, you know, it's one of the reasons I always had day jobs in lieu of writing toothpaste commercials. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. right. Like, there's a lot of things I could do. I could I could mm-hmm. do the piano bar gig at sports bars in Boston, but you know what? I You'd think I'd start life. to hate it. Yeah, you would hate it. And then I hate the one thing right. I love. Yeah. So I'd rather, you know, work at Starbucks, you know, yeah. and keep the music where, you know, where it is. And and so I think I've been lucky. You know, my mom always, always said, she's like, you know, money is a commodity. Yep. It helps. Yep. It's great to have it. It's going to be hard not to, but it comes and goes. Right. And it really is not something one should make one's major life decisions based on, yeah. you know? And I've never, you know, it, it, I've never thought about it when it comes to who I'm friends with or who I date. Right. Um, or even like the gigs I take. I mean because I'm still kind of self-owned and self-promoted and I kind of am still like a one-man show with all of that, I do, like at the moment, I didn't get paid by a huge corporation for a job I did months ago and that kind of thing you still deal with, you know? But probably no more than anybody else. Probably no more than somebody working at Starbucks with a shitty boss who doesn't put them in for overtime. So I don't know that those problems are connected yeah you know and um i've i've been pretty good i mean it's one of those things that you know if you get too obsessed with it it just starts to paralyze you you know what i mean yeah i think you can go down the rabbit hole with anything um and especially these days you know i think a lot of people are just shell shocked (laughs) um and the news is really bad but it's you know that that's also like, you know, they're selling a lot of newspapers as well. So you got to remember that, you know, you also have a certain amount of buy-in to that kind of thing. I don't think that right. denial is the answer. Right. Denial is definitely, is never the answer. Right. Uh, even if it's painful. Right. I wanted to talk a little bit about Cocksuckers Blues. Yep. Does that come out of your experiences kind of re 
uh, what would I say, reacclimating to life and, and being and feeling a little bit oh. more than you were used to and kind of digging up shit? Or is this just another venue? No, 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 no. I It has, for me, it has to, like, that That show actually hurts. It yeah. really does. It's uh. hard to do. And, you know, as I as I explain in the show, the I dated my boyfriend at the time from 1997 and we broke up at the end of 2001 we did make the move from boston to la but it was about four years and and that's mr venice that's that's matt yeah okay. that's venice and let's have a listen to venice this is the live version from the scream along with billy live album which is now almost impossible to get unfortunately but it does feature sue goldberg on bass and i believe paul huff is on drums here's venice one, two, three, four. Stoned at 1.15 p.m. on Thursday afternoon, September 12th. So tragedies will come and go, that's life, and just like dogs, they laugh themselves. Months after you and me, my breakup records are ready for the shower. Except this first song, which I hope will find us in good humor and good health. I'm still in Venice watching every movie by Fellini with the cat. The one that's left on me. you like that Now there ain't no law I wouldn't break There ain't no rule I wouldn't bend If I could go back to our mistakes But we both know how this record's gonna end After Boston and Seattle California was the place They don't like cats Our luck might hold out a while And we could start to move from grass to grace There are days that all goes well And then, oh baby, there are other days But if it ends badly, what the hell Yeah, if it ends badly, what the hell? It lasts forever while the record plays. Why, thank you. Ah, oh, Christ. And I wrote those songs, and that was how I recovered. Mm. That and that and crack. Sure. Um, <laughs> but I wrote those songs in the first six months of two thousand and two. Okay. Um, the album, Sue and I. I've got a ton of original material. All these garage song songs, all these musicals, all these. Yeah. Somebody tallied it up, and there were like eight hundred songs out there, and yet nobody ever. They don't really think of Screaming Along with Billy as a cover band, right. but we're almost always doing other people's music, and right. people like the original stuff. So, 
we we needed to do an album of original material just so that we could also remind people that you know that's also a part of what we do yeah and venice was an album that i had kind of written and sequenced and just never recorded it It, but i was like i have one that i think is ready to go so in 2013 so this is 11 years later Mm. um we went into the studio recorded venice and put it out and so in and of itself the record was the songs were written in the moment uh and you can can tell but they were recorded a decade later so even though there's still that kind of memory it brings it back up so telling this story i needed to put a show together um because leah delaria is a bought a club in Provincetown. She's, I had written a musical for her with some friends a couple of years ago. Mm. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do a one man show. And I knew I needed to do something where I could incorporate original music. And Venice is a, a pretty well-known, well-regarded album, at least among people who follow me. Sure. Um, and so, you know, at that point, you know, when I was putting this show together last spring, I had been single for, a very long time and part of my routine at Scream Along is how disastrous my relationships have been how disastrous right. everything right. and so I put this show together um, and literally two weeks before it opened I started dating this guy and mm. it was like holy shit wow wow yeah it was really and and so that was what was so strange about it was that everything just felt very dated all of a sudden in a way that it didn't. <laughs> right. It was a part of an old you. But, but but only as of a week before. <laughs> but it was kind of like the minute right. I crossed over, it felt 20 years old. Wow. You know what I mean? Do you it feel like you like, exercised some demons or something? Or what was it? Is it just... I... Yeah. You're ready I, for love and it just your heart opened? I'm I not getting cheesy, guess, but... I guess. I yeah. mean, I still tell... You know, I have these old stories. So, like the the peeing the bed story is right. also, you know, 15 years old, but it yeah. still works. Because, you know, <laughs> um, I don't really have a lot of the feelings around all of that that it used to. Yeah. They come back, you know, still saying sure. it, you know. Yeah. But, oh, um, yeah, no, it was really, really strange. And I had, um, I had invited... Uh, Chris Kelly, who's a theater director in Buffalo, who mm. I love. Mm. And he directed the video for Tour Relay. Yeah, which, which I love. Yeah. Great video. Great video. And um, he came down to help me because we're talking about self-indulgent, right? So with a show like Cocksucker Blues, it's my life. Mm-hmm. I wrote the show and I'm performing it. So it's going to be self-indulgent by nature. So right. you want some somebody else to come and look at it, you know, and say, no, it looks like you're holding Um, so he said, you know, he came in and I was doing the show for him and he was like, he was like, you have to tell the audience about your new boyfriend. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I am very protective. I learned that the hard way. In the early days at Scream Along, I'd be like, oh, Nick and I were shooting up yesterday and then I fucked Tanya. And it was like five of us and nobody cared. But then all of a sudden, like, People I didn't know were there and people were paying attention. And so oh, I was God. like, I had to protect my friends, right? right? Promise Town is a um, small town. Sure, sure. <laughs> Especially my famous friends because right. it's kind of like, oh, sure. you know, yeah. that's news. Right. You know what I mean? Just right. that, you know, it's kind of like I was doing, you know, lines of cocaine with, you know, Faye Dunaway last night. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's, I didn't, obviously. Oh, I don't but, know Faye Dunaway. But, <laughs> that would be a great story. So, but yeah, so he said, but he said, but you're disconnected from this material in a way that you're not usually disconnected from the material. 
material. Mm. So then it was like, so am I going to really put my new boyfriend into a show now? You know, Um, I didn't want him to see this show anyway. Yeah. Right? Because right. this is all of my sex and drugs and right. It's Skeletons like in the closet. All my exes, right? right. Oh. So from his point and he came. I had asked him to wait. I said, let me get it, you know, if you want to come see it at some because we'd literally been dating like two weeks when this opened. That's a huge roll of the dice. But all of his friends were coming on opening night. And I was like, come if you want to. So he had been dating me like two weeks, I think. And he not only sat through this show, when you see the show, you'll be like, oh my God. Um, <laughs> but he was also in it. And I yeah. was like, yeah, oh fuck. I, yeah, it was, um, it's very, you'll see how I did it. But it's, um, yeah. So Cocksucker Blues, Venice, I wanted to make a breakup record that might help. That yeah. at least wouldn't hurt. Yeah. And so I listened to, you know, I, I love breakup records. And so mm. I studied Blue and Car Wheels on a Gravel Road and Blood mm. on the Tracks and all these great, even Songs for the Lonely, you know, all these mm. great breakup records. And I wanted to try to do something with Venice that hadn't been done before. Because um, I felt like there's no reason to, you know, like the last time I saw Richard that Joni Mitchell ends yeah. Blue with is perfect. Right. You know, you, right. come, you, you do Case of You and River. Mm. And then you come back 10 years later and everybody's moved on. It's genius. You don't need to yep. do that again. Yep. So I wanted to try. And that was when the idea with the album of Venice was Dr. Kubler-Ross, that I would take one of each of the emotions and come at it from oh, yeah. a different place. So each song comes from a different like level. There's anger, denial, bargaining, guilt, oh acceptance, self-pity. <laughs> and then also when I, we were recording it, I wanted it, I wanted to give each song its own kind of Americana vibe. So there's the song that sounds a little like rockabilly. There's country, there's yeah. early rock and roll. There's even a little psychedelic kind of like right. late 60s in that second song. So each song also had its own genre. Mm-hmm. So it was like each song kind of has a different thing and it coming from a different emotion. Um, yeah, I love uh, Smoke in the House now. That is, you know, it's a little country-ish, but mm-hmm. you have such a good, like, twist on it. It's just, uh, it's it's beautiful. That's it's... a very, yeah, and, um, yeah, that's actually one of the most covered songs I have that's out mm. there that people do. But that was a real, like, underground favorite off yeah. the record. Yeah. Um, and that, of course, is, is my great is paying to you know self-pity right. you know <laughs> who doesn't want a little self-pity once right. in a while you you, can, you know it's being human because um even though it, it it also had become you know it literally like the very first song used to be called 91202 because mm. it was written on september 12th a year later which i refer to um and then the same thing you know in, in smoke in the house planes yeah. fly into buildings if yeah, you yeah. let me go yeah and here is billy huff and Sue Goldberg on bass, Paul Huff on drums, Smoke in the House. I smoke in the house now, much more than I used to. I don't brush my teeth now, the way I'm supposed to. I really don't care. What the newspapers say is always worse in the morning than it was today. Whether I'll make it or not, I don't know. Planes fly into buildings and you let me go. My mother once saw me. 
song actually has the most cringy line for me mm. the of all of the songs you know and I name names and you know neither one of us looks that great by the end of it mm. which is why I like the Yom Kippur as kind of this yeah. like you know yeah. Um, well, and that's the, you feel that when I see you perform. I think that really comes through that, hey, look, we're all going to fuck up. Right. I'm going to tell you about some of mine. And I know you got yours, too. Right. And it's a great relief. It's right. like, oh, fine. thank God I don't have to be perfect. Right. And that was something that I knew when I recorded Venice that I didn't know when I wrote it. Like mm-hmm. it was one of those, you know, as you just learn as you get older and you see more and you experience more. But um, I didn't change anything on Venice uh, Sue helped a little bit. We did yeah. put the song X-Ray. X-Ray was from a different set of songs, but I learned from Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, if I if you start the record with he's cheating on me and then we have the breakup, I mean, you don't have anything invested. And the great thing about Blue is that because she opens with All I Want and My Old Man, Ugh. she shows you the relationship working. So right. then you have something invested when it falls apart. Right. So like X-Ray was about, you know, I mean, the whole thing is end cap. Like the first song is kind of like, you know, loops in with the whole, we're going to do this record one more time. Mm-hmm. You know, we know how it ends, but right, let's, right, go, right. let's, let's go do it from the yeah. top one yeah. more time. And, uh, and I loved that. It's a record that knows it's a breakup record. Yeah. It even comments on it. Yeah. And, yeah. um, but then that song X-Ray into kind of, she's not coming over. It really was just a way of getting, you know, of creating this sense of like, okay, so this was hot and this was fun and this was sexy. So now here's the pain when it kind of falls apart. And, um, I did in, in Yom Kippur, when I did it, I changed the second verse, when I, I just inserted the line, bear in mind, it's only my side of the story. Right. Because that's something I knew at 30, what, four when I put it out that I didn't know at 24 when I wrote it, which yeah. was nobody re- nobody remembers the story as being the villain. Right. None of us think we're the villain. <laughs> I you know. know. I mean, everybody, if you interviewed the three major players in this yeah. drama, everybody would have a very right. different version of who was the bad guy. True. And I feel like, you know, with, with all of those... You know, the like Bowie and uh, Lou Reed and, you know, and and Led Zeppelin and all these sort of not necessarily breakup songs, but like Heartbreaker and like, mm. oh, what you've done to me. And then you real read about what they were doing at that time. It's like, no, you were the heartbreaker. Yes, Don't yes. be going to like you fucked over so many people. And, you know, and that's one <sighs> of those things where, you know, in, in terms of like, you know, I th- but people love that about rock stars. That's right. like where we love rock and roll. So right. it's kind of like they love the bravado of it. Yeah. 
yeah. they see themselves. And so I get away with putting a little bit more kind of self abnegation into it a little bit which yeah. is not what people want out of like necessarily like a rock star kind of thing and the thing about scream along with billy which is really fun with the wig and it doesn't mean that you know but is that i'm kind of playing with the idea of persona and yet it's this kind of it's pretending to be fake that mm-hmm. kind of allows me to be more real. So it gets a little... Right. It's one of the reasons I don't analyze it because it right. you just go you right up your own and... butthole and it <laughs> seems to disappear. But, you know, at the same time, right. um, you know, it's like Eminem. It was like, I always give Eminem a lot of credit for doing with hip-hop what Bob Dylan did with rock and roll lyrics mm. where he blew it wide open. And right. he was like, you can write about anything. Right. And, you know, hip hop had been a genre of, you know, it was bravado and it right. was macho posturing and it was, I'm the best. And, you know, you're and an ass. Zero irony. And, zero. You know, like, and Eminem was that. like, you know, yeah. I'm kind of gay and I hate right. my mommy. You right. know, and it was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, but it was great. Right. And right. so, you know, I think that there was, I, you know, to a certain extent, that was a controversy that we did mm. an Eminem album in Provincetown. Mm. Right, because it's hugely yeah, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Uh, but we told it was like, trust us, trust us. Right. And they dug it. But, right. um, well, good. I'm glad you noticed that. Yeah, I could put yeah. a little bit of that in. Your film work, when I was looking at some of the things you've done, the films you were involved with, I suddenly got a little intimidated. You're, you're, you have made songs for big Hollywood movies? I have, I know. It's mostly all my friend Oren. Oren Moverman, who's uh, one of my favorite people in the world. Yeah. He also, he's a great writer and he's mm. a rock and roll nerd. Yeah. He wrote Jesus Son, the script based on... Oh my on, God. Yeah. 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 He yeah. wrote I'm Not Here, the Dylan movie. Oh. He wrote, uh, oh, I forget the Brian Wilson movie. From a yes, of, uh, uh, Love and Mercy. Love and Mercy. So yeah. that's all fan, Oren, the writer. Yeah. But as a director, he and the actor Ben Foster were together and we lost a mutual friend of ours and mm-hmm. I had met Oren but didn't know him and I played a benefit to raise money to help bury our friend yeah. and I sang Downtown which is a song I've been singing for some reason since I like <laughs> in my first punk band we used to right. do that song and they were making this movie called Rampart mm-hmm. you know which uh, the most amazing cast I mean it's just fantastic it's a uh, um, Woody Harrelson and Sigourney Weaver and Steve Buscemi and Ice Cube and wow. you know wow. Ned Beatty and yeah. you know Cynthia Nixon. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic cast, and um, and so they wanted me in a piano bar scene mm. to just sing this song, and that was my job. And they flew me out to L.A. and I got there. They put me up in a hotel for three hours, woke me up, sent a car, took me into wardrobe, dressed me up in whatever, and took me to this film set. And somewhere in the San Fernando Valley, and it was an old like Sizzler steakhouse that had been reconfitted to look like a nightclub. And wow. at seven in the morning, they had a hundred extras sitting in suits and chairs with fake martinis right. and fake ice, right? Because right. for oh, continuity, you it can't, can't melt. Yeah. So right. he put me up at the the piano in front of all the you know, cameras and second, you know. Yeah. And I was like, okay, because I was going to do downtown, and he was like, just maybe do a couple of songs, and I was like. Okay. I can, mm, yeah. He was like, hey, "Just do your thing," and I was like, "What? What? Are you, what are you talking about?" He's like, "You know, <laughs> where you just talk," and I was like, "What?" But I, I said, "Okay, what year does this right. movie take place? Right? Like, right. Where are we in the country? Like, right. I, it was it was really stressful." So he ended up saying, "Roll them," and I just he let me go for thirty minutes, and then he said, "Cut," and I was like, "Whew!" And yeah. He was like, "And now we have to do." 
crowd noise because you have to do it separately. They have to be totally quiet while I'm doing it. Right. And then we come back and I have to be quiet while they make noise so they can do the mix, right? Right. So he said, so we're just going to play that back and I need you to just uh, lip sync what you just <laughs> And I said, 30 minutes of ad lib, you want me right. to lip sync? Right. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> so we did it and by the end of it they used three songs put them on including the song Venice yep. put it on the soundtrack and I'm actually in the movie quite a bit yeah, I get yeah. calls all the time just randomly somebody's like I just saw you <laughs> um, and then when he did uh, his the next film Time Out of Mind yeah. um, with uh, Richard Gere I yep. don't know if you've ever seen it it's a beautiful mu- movie but um he wanted me to play a, a junkie on the street kind of singing a song as Richard Gere walked by. Mm-hmm. And I said, can I try to write it? You know, cause it's like, I know, you know, it's, we, we've gotten to a point where, you know, I could do a Bob Dylan song or a Tom Waits song, but like we're at a point where people don't write songs for movies anymore. You get, right. even when you watch the stuff at the Oscars, it's like, so it's like a, a, an, a song you two were cut, you know, leaving on the cutting room floor that right. Disney's like, well, I can make a dancing fairy to it or something. <laughs> And um, I was like, let me see. I was like, if I can't do it to satisfaction, I'll do just like Tom Thumbs Blues. Fine. But in every version of this scene in the movies, they sing just like Tom Thumbs Blues. Let me try. Because I was thinking, you know, like like, uh, everybody's talking from Midnight Cowboy Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. Cat Stevens Mm -hmm. and Harold and Maude or, you know, Leonard Cohen and McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about, let me try. So I wrote this song called Radical Days. I wrote it in 24 hours. I had to do it really fast. And I wanted to write a song that sounded like it could have been written 60 years ago. It could could have been a Bob Dylan cover, but also had... um, And they loved it. And they ended up making it the theme song for the film. Um, and so they flew me out to New York that time and we shot it on the street and Richard Gere was producing the movie and he loved the song, wanted to talk, made me so nervous. He was, yeah. you know, all I could, I was just listening to him talk and I was like, you're the handsomest homeless person ever. <laughs> um, I so I did that one. And then the last one was The Dinner, which is yeah. really great. It's super dark. Did you see that one? I have oh, not. I would... that, check that one out. Okay. It's really black. And are you going to segue into more acting then, do you think? I'd there... love to. Yeah. I really, really would. Um, I love to act. Uh, you know, I kind of keep thinking somebody will offer me something, but that's not how it works. Well, um, if anybody's out there listening to this podcast, yeah, looking for an actor. Please, right, exactly. I'm he's ready. ready. He's, he's brilliant. Ready. But I do love acting. Yes. I really do. Yeah. And the Gold Dust Orphans. Yeah. On top of everything else, you yeah. also were a founding member of a theater company. Yeah, that's that's thriving. That's still, and in, in yeah. Provincetown now, I think they started in Boston. And, and they're still here. And they're, they're, they're still, still here, here as well. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so, no, they do. And they, they usually take their show to New York in the fall. Um, it's great. The thing about the Gold Dust Orphans was we were doing four shows a year. Mm-hmm. And when you were in the company, we always started writing and rehearsing the new show while the old show was up. And I loved it. I mean, I I worked with them up until just a few years ago and and it was my move to New York that kind of broke that tradition. Though I would still perform with them in Provincetown. They Mm. used to do Sundays and so I used to be able to do it. But the thing about the, is uh, it was just, it was, it was all I was able to do. Yeah. Um, and I had so many other things I wanted to do. I wanted to write and I wanted to do my own shows and sure. stuff. And so, but it was an amazing experience. And we wrote like 12 musicals. I mean, yeah, it's a lot of stuff. The very first one was a, a, a spoof on The Grinch. And then mm. we did Rosemary's Baby, the musical. That was our oh, first yeah. really big yeah. hit. Yeah. And uh, we did Cleopatra, mm. the musical of Charlie's Angels, Cinderella. 
There's about 12 of them, I think, that, that we worked on together. There were Wiz and Willy Wanker. <laughs> <laughs> great. That's but, awesome. Uh, yeah, it's great. And Ryan is still a good friend of mine. And Ryan, uh, I could have wow. done any of them. I could have done, I'd have been happy writing books. I'd have been happy, you know, in, as an actor. I'm happy, you know, as I am. Yeah. It's, um, that's the best thing. I mean, the thing about being poor is that you don't I don't worry about money so much. I either have right. it or I don't. Right. So now that I'm kind of able to survive all but the worst crunchy moments, the scary moments that everybody has, no matter how yeah. much money you have or don't yeah, have. Yeah. Um being able to weather that for the most part just frees me up creatively to do as much as I'm able to do at any yeah. given moment, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's true. I mean, that is the one thing is that I have, have mostly done exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I don't know that you can actually do that and and try to make money. I don't think that that, you know what I mean? <laughs> Unless somehow what you want to do is like trade stocks right. on Wall Street sure. for those people. Sure. Or if you have one of those moments where, you know, you, you discover something and you make a gajillion dollars. But, right. you know, I've got a lot of, of friends who have a lot of money and they don't seem any happier than anybody else. Right. They have a lot of problems. I don't have two. True. Because, you know, when I don't have enough money to pay the bills this month, I have to borrow a few hundred dollars from somebody. Mm. When they can't pay the bills, you got a problem. Right. You know? <laughs> they can't borrow enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know. Do you have a home now? Do you have a home base <laughs> that you work out of? You know, I do and I don't. Everybody always laughs, but um, I literally split my time almost evenly between Provincetown, New York and Boston. Mm. It used to be much more traditional where I was in Provincetown for six months and New York for six months and then I would pretty much go to Boston every week because yeah. my mother's there now and right. my brothers are there. Right. Um, this winter now I have a boyfriend in Provincetown who I stay with much of the time sure. and I still have the place I live in New York mm. so we just kind of move like I'm here I, I'm here I go back to Provincetown on Friday to do Scream Along and then I'm back next week to do Cocksucker Blues and then I'm going to LA to shoot a movie for Netflix. Oh, what are you doing? It's I am in this one woman show. Oh, right? it's a one woman show. Yes, we are. Awesome. We shoot. So That's great. We're doing that and then we come back and then go back to New York and then it's it. So wow. um, I love it and as long as my little Toyota Scion holds up, I'm fine. That's <laughs> right. literally the secret to my life is like is that I have a running car. Right. Um, but I've always been kind of nomadic. Yeah. I'm okay. Yeah. You know, I'm always like happy on a couch. I love yeah. hotel rooms. Yeah. There's something about like the trend, feeling like your movement. That's the yeah. sensation of you always right. moving. You know what I mean? Kind of goes back to South Africa. I think it like. does. Yeah. yeah just, just, I, I, and I think that was where, <clears throat> I don't know if that's where I learned how to be okay being alone. Um, but I think I learned that maybe I had always been okay alone. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Doesn't mean right. I don't like being with people. I do. Sure. But, um, it's just one of those I've I've been foolish enough to just kind of go with my gut and lucky enough to not get burned too badly doing it. Right. Right. This far. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Folks, if you haven't seen him, please go out and see Billy Huff as Scream Along with Billy, Cocksuckers Blues, whatever he decides to do next. <laughs> He's a genius. Don't miss it. It's a great experience. Billy, thank you so much for doing uh, this. It's sure. been thank amazing. Ah, uh, sure, Nate. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Most appreciated. You're welcome. All thank right. you. So there it is. A man committed to his art, which is amazing. 
I'm always tempted at these junctures to gush about how everyone should hold on to the core of who they truly are, what they truly want in life, and go for that as best you can. But then I think, what if who you truly are is a serial killer or a child molester? Then maybe you should let go of who you truly are and reach for something else, something better. Or maybe life is a bit like a sieve, and what you are or what you could be is the result of the things left over from the experiences you've had, the teeth that have not been knocked out. Maybe what you're left with, that's what you hold on to, the core of what's left, the door that's still open a crack. And once you have a bit of light, work on opening that door all the way. I think when Scream Along started, Billy didn't even really have a dream. He had a thing to do that he enjoyed, and a way to do it that was true to him. And he and Sue worked on that, slowly and steadily, over a course of actually years, until that door started to open. So that's it for the first episode of How Did I Get Here? Special thanks to Billy Huff, today's guest, and all of you listening. I wish you best of luck in opening all the doors in your life. Join me again in our next episode, in which I'll be talking with poet Jake Stroutman. At this point, I would probably also mention Billy's upcoming concerts and performances with Scream Along and elsewhere. However, because of the coronavirus, there are not any actual face-to-face type performances. However, if you go on the Facebook, you can find Billy Huff, and he is doing, periodically, he is doing Facebook Live events with Sue and Billy, Scream Along with Billy, and also special guests. So if you're interested, please look on Facebook for those. They're well worth watching. It's not quite the same as being in a small, dimly lit bar, but it's close. So that's it. That's all. My name's Nate Beyer, and I'm responsible for the production of this podcast. Bye-bye.